It's time for the only show where today's top mid-revenue cycle leaders share the personal stories, struggles, and successes that you won't hear on the big stage, but made them who they are today. Are you ready to go off the record? Here's your host, Brian Murphy. I've had a few inspiring guests on Off the Record, but none quite like uh, today. Um, I was just chatting with her, and I'll introduce her in a moment. But in my last official conference as ACTUS director, I had the pleasure of introducing Dr. Nicole Fox as our opening keynote. Um, Nicole is not a professional lecturer, although she does get on, on the lecture tour. But at this conference, she delivered one of the most impactful and inspiring speeches I've seen which is saying something because we've had quite a number of, we had quite a number of keynotes over the year at Actus during my tenure, but she covered her work as a pediatric trauma surgeon and also her struggles as a, a single mother raising three children. Um, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Nicole Fox. Nicole is a trauma surgeon, associate chief medical officer, associate professor of surgery, and the medical director of pediatric trauma for Cooper University Hospital, a level one trauma facility in Camden, New Jersey. Oh, and she also happens to serve as uh, medical director for the hospital CDI program. <laughs> Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, Talk good to, to be here. For a while. I know, and, and a long way back. We're going to get into this now, but you're also recently back from uh, a World Trauma Congress. I was looking this up before the show started in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And of course, you were married this, was it this year? This year, February. This year. Okay. Yes, this year. So a ton, a ton going on with a you. A lot. It's been a big year. Yes, it's certainly. This has been a huge. This has been the year of Nicole, and I'm looking forward to, <laughs> to catching up and getting and getting into it with you here. Sure. Um, so welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, let's let's start with the with the trip to Tokyo. This is pretty cool. Um, would love to hear what you might have either picked up about uh, advances in the latest in trauma treatment, or maybe Japanese culture or cuisine. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast about Tokyo. I have to tell oh, you, gosh. Because, um, it's an amazing place. And I think going into it, I really prepared for the Japanese culture. I read a lot about Japanese philosophy. And then, of course, I prepared for the meeting. So it was sort of a twofold uh, trip. But I'll tell you, in terms of trauma care, the one thing that I did learn at the World Trauma Congress, because multiple countries are represented, everyone internationally travels to this was the sixth World Trauma Congress. So it's fairly new. Okay. Um, the United States really has a very cohesive trauma system. So we are way ahead of many places and we don't even realize how well resourced we are. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone sort of struggles with a different set of problems. The one statistic I could share that really stood out to me was that in the United States in 2022, 48,000 people died from gunshot wounds, which is a lot. Oh, we know gosh, we have yeah. a problem with gun violence in the United States. Mm -hmm. In Japan, can you guess how many people died of gun violence in that entire country in 2022? Oh, I put me on the spot here. Um, I know it's way, way lower. I'm going to, I'm, I'll, I'll just hazard a guess. Uh, 1,200. Four people. Four people. Four people. So that wow. was really sobering. Um, and I think, you know, I, not that Jap Japan doesn't have another set of issues or other problems. They openly acknowledge that, but the difference in culture, um, the way that they do things in that country is really very different from the United States. And that stood out to me in the meeting, amongst many other things. But I think that was worth sharing uh, in this on this podcast. You know, oh, that good we Lord. really are dealing with some different issues. Yeah. So we have the care, but we're not doing the preventative piece. 
You know, we're, well, I think we're, we're struggling with the preventative piece for sure yeah. for many reasons. But other than that, the, you know, the culture was amazing. The food was amazing, as you can imagine. We took a couple food tours in Tokyo and Kyoto. We saw a real geisha, a re- an actual geisha on the okay. beyond. So it was just, it was fascinating. And I am in such a hurry to go back. I really want to take the kids and expose them to that culture because it was awesome. amazing. Yeah. Any prep for a listener who's thinking about it? I've, I, it's, it's not on my immediate to-go list, but I've thought about it. It looks beautiful. Um, any anything you'd recommend, or any any way? And did you say you actually prepared by learning some of the language or, or some of the customs before you went there? I did. There are three books that I would really recommend to anybody who's traveling to Japan, and they're sort of philosophical. One is called Ikigai. Okay. Um, it's spelled. I'm looking at it right now. It's right above me. It's called A K. I'm sorry, I K I G A I. And it's the Japanese concept of where you really find the perfect intersection between what you love doing, what you can make money doing, what the world needs, your reason for being. Mm. Um, and if you read the book, you'll understand a little more about it. And and it's a Japanese philosophy that I found fascinating. So and then cool. another book was called Wabi Sabi, which translates into beauty and simplicity. And it's sort of about appreciating everyday beauty and very simple things and resetting your mind um, to appreciate what you have rather than worrying about what you don't have. Mm-hmm. And then the third book I read was called Ichigo Ichie, and that translates into one moment, one lifetime. And the fact that everything we're doing, like you and I doing this podcast, we could do it every week, but us doing this today, this is, it will never be like this again. We experience yeah. it once and we have to really immerse ourselves and enjoy it. And so I kind of went into Japan in that mindset in a very focused Zen type of mindset. Mm-hmm. And those books really prepared me. And then I would say to anyone traveling there, just it's really beneficial to get a guide to help you. It's a very easy country to navigate because everybody's so nice and they make the transportation seamless. But it was very nice to have guides that were Japanese and could mm-hmm. give you some insight on culture and take you around to places that you might not find on your own and things like that. So uh, I would really suggest that if you can do it. Love it. Well, you can also have a second career as a travel uh, agent here to thanks for helping all my listeners. But I, I, I love what you just said. Um, and I love that there are these words that don't translate precisely. You mentioned right. what was the first one? EK guy. I think you said guy guy that it, it, it has a plethora of, of meanings and that one word encapsulates so much. And you're always so thoughtful with that. I, I, I'm again, hearkening back to your keynote where you had, um, I remember you referred to, um, Good wolf and bad wolf, and um, mm-hmm. both of them warring inside of the same person. And right. there's all there's a there was a, a proverb or a, a little story that's you might have heard being told, and, and um, it goes that these two spirits are at war within us, and the grandfather's telling it to his grandchild, and the grandchild asks the grandfather, you know, which which wolf wins, and he says, well, that's the one you feed. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so yeah. You're just you're a very spiritual person, and and it's awesome that you were able to experience that uh, and uh, and a little bit of that in Japan as well as you know learning about trauma. We're gonna get into trauma a little bit later here. It was in fact, perfect. Yeah. I have to tell you, if I had to define iki guy, that was it. I was on a trip with my husband, who I obviously love very much, in a country that was fantastic, and I got to do both things. I got to do the work that I love, but that I got to experience culture and have family time. And it really was Ikigai defined, finding that Mm -hmm. perfect spot where everything intersected at once. Um, So it kind of came to life. But the book, I would highly recommend. I think it was a New York Times bestseller, so you can find it pretty easily. 
All right. I'm going to put that in the, as they say in podcast lingo in the show notes for people, if they want to explore it a little further, really cool. I'm a, I'm a big reader as you can see behind me. And yes, I will, uh, I will check that out, Nicole. All right. Um, gosh, there's so much to talk about here, but was hoping maybe we could start with just a little bit about, and again, could be a whole other show. This will probably be a theme of today's show. <laughs> each, mm-hmm. each question exactly. is big, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about your day, a day for you, if there is such a thing in, in pediatric trauma. Um, the reason why I ask is, obviously, this is a show for folks serving the medical record. A lot of my audience are CDI professionals. I have medical coders in the audience and case managers. Um, many of them, one of their biggest struggles is getting the query answer and getting provider engagement. Um this is, I think, very instructive to, to hear from you about your your life as a as a pediatric trauma surgeon and um, how busy it is. How every day is um, well. I, I won't spoil any more, but I, I just want you to talk about that and and sort of also how that relates to the current epidemic that I've been talking about on my show a little bit of provider burnout and how this all sort of goes in hand in hand. Sure. It's a big question. I think the best example to probably use about a typical day would be I was on call Friday at Cooper. So a call day is a good snapshot of what life is sort of like here in a busy trauma center. So we're a level one adult, like you said, Mm -hmm. uh, trauma center, level two pediatric trauma center. Um, Call for us is a full 24 hour call where you come in at eight o'clock on the day of your call and you leave the following morning when you've signed out your patients. So those kind of days, I can tell you at a place that's as high volume and high acuity here, is they're really tough. And I struggled a lot on Friday with multiple things happening with patients that I could not physically be in two places at one time. So I would have a sick patient down in the trauma bay who had come in from a motor vehicle accident that was in hemorrhagic shock. Meanwhile, there's someone up in the ICU that needs to be intubated, has to have a breathing tube um, put in. I'll use CDI terms, acute hypoxic respiratory failure. Um, and so I have all these things going on. We do have fellows, we have residents, we have a lot of help, but the day is consumed by patient care, by making high level decisions with very little information most times. So sometimes I find that our CDS is our clinical documentation specialist sometimes wonder about the timeliness of responses to their queries and things like that. So after a call like that Friday, where I went home completely depleted Saturday morning, exhausted, that the data shows that it takes people about two days to recover from that, two and a half days to recover their sleep pattern um, and things like that. So right now it's Tuesday. Now I was on call Friday. Today's the day that I might end up looking at my inbox, starting to complete my notes maybe Mm -hmm. look at the queries I probably got over the weekend. And so that will explain to some people why there may be a four-day delay or a three-day delay, um, plus all the other competing priorities I have. So for the weekend, I was on call Friday, then I rounded the rest of the weekend and had to fit in family time at some point. Now I come back to a lot of competing priorities, just one of which are the the queries, you know, and Mm -hmm. then there are phone calls to return, emails to return, podcasts to do, right, meetings to attend. (laughs) So I think people just have to keep in mind that there are so many components to being a physician now that are outside of just clinical medicine. When you're doing Mm -hmm. the clinical part of it, you have to be 100% focused. But then when it's time to catch up, there are going to be about 55 things on the to-do list. And so I think it's really important. 
Cooper's done a great job of helping physicians understand the why behind CDI and how important it is and the timeliness of it. But, um, you know, it is going to fall somewhere on the priority list and, and it might not be at yeah. the top. So I think um, yeah. I think people in the field have to keep that in mind. Yeah. And thanks for sharing that. That's, um, you know, that's a big reason why I, I wanted you to, to talk through that. Um, but any, any we're not, we're not going to solve this here, but any suggestion for CDI professionals who might be feeling a little bit isolated from that or want to increase their empathy f- on the provider side? I, I'm, 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 you know, I, I love the sort of remote work revolution. I'm a beneficiary of it. I work from home. Um, with my current company and it's, it's wonderful. It gives you a lot of flexibility, but I do wonder about um, sometimes about CDI professionals in particular who are working remotely, aren't seeing what you're seeing on a day-to-day basis and maybe lose sight of that. I know many of them were not exclusively, but many of them were nurses often at the bedside, often working at the elbow of a, phys- of a physician, but a lot of new folks coming in that might, not have that same depth or or length of clinical experience. And certainly those that have now been working at home for maybe the last three years because of the pandemic, getting a little distant from that. Um, anything that they can do to sort of reconnect with that purpose of serving the clinical team and not seeing them as a a button to push because I need this information finished. Well, one obvious suggestion would be if you have the ability and you may not to come into the hospital at some point, you know what I mean? And maybe physically around with the teams. Now that's not necessary and it may not be realistic because most of our CDSs are remote and they're not in a location that makes that feasible. So I think uh, if you want to take that out of the equation, the other way, our physicians, and I just got an email this morning, actually, are dying for education, Mm one-on-one education or even small group education about documentation, which you can do via Zoom. You can do remotely, but still have that face-to-face interaction. So I would take advantage of that or even offer that out. If you see a particular group and pick a small one, like if you have, if you're in a hospital that has three nephrologists or something, maybe offer to them like, hey, would you want to spend a half an hour, 45 minutes on Zoom, going through some of your charts, talking about documentation opportunities? You would be surprised how many people would want to do that. It's become very relevant to physicians. And then there's been a lot of changes, as you know, with CMS and some of the guidelines and requirements that we've had to do a lot of education on. And a lot of it has been requested. It hasn't been us trying to force it on the physicians. They're bothering us about where can we find somebody to talk to us about this? Can somebody look at my notes? Um, And it always helps when you're educating physicians to use their notes, to use their entries in the medical record as template, you know, as, as templates mm-hmm. for education. Our coders do that for us. It's really helpful in trauma. I actually have a meeting with them at noon today because that's a quarterly meeting that we have with our coders to go over charts, areas of opportunity, educational tips for the trauma surgeons. So make yourself useful that way. And I think you can feel mm-hmm. really connected to the physician staff if you do that and not have to be in person or in the hospital necessarily. I love it. Great suggestion. Um, and it's it's wonderful to hear that they are starved for this information and looking for assistance. So uh, ready place for CDI or HIM professional to step in there. Um, yeah, let's 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 talk about your path into CDI, Nicole. Again, mm-hmm. for those that haven't heard, maybe Nicole speak at our conference. I keep saying R, and that, I will do that for the rest of my life. No longer with Actus, but spent many years there. Uh, you told your story there, but. Um, 
for those that don't know, I believe it was, correct me if I'm speaking out of turn, a bit of an inauspicious start. Um, it was pretty maybe, pathetic. <laughs> I, I believe you may have been one of the worst. Uh, I was. I documenting was physicians. Yeah. Many, many incomplete charts. I'll let you, if you want to disclose how many there actually were, you had to, you had to finish that were outstanding. Uh, but would love to talk about your your pre CDI days being a being not the best and most timely documenter to eventually becoming the um, <laughs> medical director for the hospital CDI program. That's that's quite a leap. How, how did that all come about, Nicole? Yeah, I'll try to condense that story down to be reasonable. But I think that that opportunity to be the medical director of CDI was really born out of desperation and necessity. Um, I had really reached a point early in my career that I was not happy. I was burnt. I, you know, do if you want to use the word burnout, I don't think mm-hmm. it's the best word, but I was frustrated. I was tired. Um, I was struggling with a lot of personal issues and just professional dissatisfaction. Um, as we see, as you mentioned before in your previous question, this epidemic that we see among physicians. And I really didn't know where to go with that because it was a pretty frightening thought that you spent all this time and money and effort to achieve this huge goal you had. And now there were days when I literally couldn't see myself walking in that this hospital one more day. It was just so exhausting and frustrating. So one of our, our CMO at the time, who's now our CEO actually, was I knew him from the past, from studying for MCATs and it was a long uh, backstory, but he knew of my interest in hospital administration that I had a master's in public health and administration. And he actually encouraged me to interview for this new position, for this new program that they were launching at Cooper, uh, Clinical Documentation Integrity. And I was horrified because I had zero or less than zero interest in clinical documentation. I didn't understand it. I didn't I, no matter how many times somebody explained DRG or CMI or any of these terms to me, it didn't stick. And I found it really dry. But <clears throat> it's it stuck out that he said to me that it would the job would give me some protected time that would lead to less trauma call and mm. less clinical time. And somewhere in this fog that I was in, I saw a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Like maybe this was a salvation, you know, a way for me to sort of stay at Cooper and find some sort of balance uh, in my workplace. So I interviewed for it and I was honest with them, you know, that this was just not my area of expertise, but they were enthusiastic about it. They wanted a surgeon. They really did want a surgeon to do it. They thought that would be unique. And um, so they, you know, really told me they would get me the training I needed, enable me to be able to do it and things like that. And so I got the job. What year would this have been about? This was 2000 and. 14. It might have been 2013 I was interviewing, but the, the program was launching in 2014. Okay. So less, it's not, it hasn't even been 10 years. But right. um, when I got the job and everything, we had situated everything, they did call me and say that I needed to address the 1,100 unsigned charts that I had in my <laughs> inbox. Apparently, I was at the, t- the top of the list for non-compliant physicians uh, for. So they said there was no way Although- I could be legitimate in this role if I didn't finish my work. There were wanted posters hanging on the wall of the uh, there were. medical record. So that department. was a full eight-hour day with the IT department uh, signing those charts, which was imba- wow. it was a humility lesson. Okay, it's humbling. Wow. Yeah. So uh, that's absolutely amazing. I mean, and it it all started with you just needing to find a little more space. Um, that's right. And uh, how how quickly did you start to get a grasp on this? And I I don't know whether you love CDI, but you've certainly stuck with it for again, closing in on a decade. What, what did something make the, the light bulb go off at some point where you said, I can see myself doing this and making it a 
substantive part of my job. Well, two things. One was I don't start a job unless I'm going to do it right. I'm a perfectionist to a fault. Okay. So when I start a job, I throw myself into it completely, whether it's riding horses, whether it's being medical director of CDI, whether it's being a trauma surgeon, whether it's running a pediatric trauma center, my goal is always excellence. I always say it's, it's a sin to be good when you were meant to be great, right? If you have the ability to really push yourself and be excellent, you need to do that. Now that could be, that can kill you also. But um, so I felt that way about the job. I thought I have to really immerse myself in this. And then I think I worked with a great group of people and the the dots started to, the line between the dots started to come together, right? I started to see how everything was connected and that it wasn't just about making up words or trying to please the coders. It really was better reflecting the care that you were providing for the patients. And I could see in my own documentation, like how much work I was doing on these patients and not saying a word about it, just writing some goofy sentence and that was not doing justice to my patients, to the health system, to me. Mm-hmm. And so very quickly, it just became relevant to me. And I could, it just, it took on a life of its own. And because I was clinically active and am clinically active, I was able to speak to other physicians about it in a way that they understood. And it caught on like wildfire. The We started with ICU rounds. One of our CDSs would come to rounds and she would discuss the patients with us and put it in context. And people, we would have to, force people to move along because they would ask her hundreds questions for like 10, 15, 20 minutes, and we weren't able to move to the next patient. So people really became engaged very quickly because it, it's about doing the best you can for your patients mm-hmm. and getting credit for the work that you're actually doing. Um, and that concept resonated with me. And so it, it was not hard to get into it, I have to tell you. And then oh, I really yeah. developed a true passion and a love for it. That's which awesome. I yeah, it's like learning a second language. All of a sudden, you're exposed to this entire other piece side of medicine, the business side, the uh, administrative side, the translation of all of this work that you're doing into the medical codes and how it serves the facility, not just reimbursement, but quality. It's 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 amazing when you see that. That's that's I think that's what kept me so long in this space. Is it's fascinating? It is. It's um, amazing. Yeah. So, what is your current role look like then again you're you've just <clears throat> earlier in the show you outlined uh, a day in, in doing pediatric trauma and what that looks like and decompressing so how, how are you fitting in your cdi responsibilities what percentage would you say it involves and and actually what what is it a, another fascinating aspect to all this is i've talked to physician advisors over there their jobs are quite different you're a medical director uh, quite different. So we'd just love to hear a little bit more about your role and uh, how much of it you actually are, how much time you're spending on CDI as opposed to, to clinical and other responsibilities. Well, I'll first start with an overview of the time allotment because people are fascinated by that. So for administrative time in general, I have 50% of my time allotted to my administrative role. Now that includes okay. everything, not just CDI, but all my um administrative work as the associate chief medical officer and the other teams that I oversee. So that's 50%. And then 50% of my time is as a clinical trauma surgeon. So it's evenly split. Now, sometimes it bleeds one into the other. But what happened with CDI was that the initial percentage of my time for that was 30% of my FTE time. Okay. I think most people recognize or they they don't want to admit necessarily, but this is what happens, is that as the team becomes a well-oiled machine and they get better and better, there's less need for you as the medical director and you become more of a supervisory role than hands-on. So I will be honest and say, 
maybe my team needs me 5% of the time now, okay. 10% of the time. Now, some people would say, oh, great. Well, I can collect a paycheck for that 30%, but just do 5% of the work. And that that's just not my mentality. So as the CDI team needed me less, I just filled that administrative time with other endeavors. You know, I, I started a peer support program here for physicians. I handle the bulk of the physician behavioral issues that come up in the health system. So there was a way to fill my time to make it um, worthwhile for the hospital to keep paying me for that administrative role. So mm-hmm. I think most physician advisors or medical directors of CDI, if they're honest, would admit that as your team becomes better and better, that role diminishes in need, but you can certainly fill it with other things. Um, including sure. being involved in Actus, speaking nationally, writing papers, whatever niche you can find. Yeah, absolutely. But Coming on podcasts, that type of thing, you know. Yes, so, yeah. yes exactly. <laughs> so that 5 to 10% you're still spending, Nicole, what what are you focused on? You, you mentioned, you know, maybe physician behaviors. Do, do you sometimes have to come in still as either the heavy or just someone who can really lend a supportive ear to someone who just might be, maybe like you were, you know, eight, nine, 10 years ago, kind of burned out or at least dissatisfied and and, and unable to complete the work. Um, Very rarely do I have to come in as the heavy anymore. And that's okay. a testament to Cooper and the type of people that work here. The yep. physicians here are really, they're truly amazing people. So that is so unusual that I would have to do that. But there are times when somebody's super frustrated with the requirements or they feel that they've been doing something the same way for a long time and it's been fine. And now all of a sudden it's changed. Mm-hmm. And I usually do take those opportunities to handle that personally and meet with that person in my office and talk through it, um, acknowledge their frustration and kind of explain behind the scenes what goes on with documentation, coding, some of the rules and regulations that change with the wind, it seems like. So that five to 10% can be spent on that. I handle all the query escalations. When queries go unanswered, I will chase them down because we okay. do have a 100% response rate here for physicians. And we've maintained that over the last, I guess it's been nine years of the program. 100%, so, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a consistent 100%. And that makes it easy because I can find these people in the operating room or on the floors. And I'll just, you know, I'll say, we've asked you, we've sent you two or three notices now. You need to complete your query so we can close the chart. And usually that's all it takes to kind of get somebody to get in there and and complete it. So that's remarkable. You know, I mean, most CDI programs, a lot of them now are are hitting at least 90%, 95%. I don't, haven't heard too many that consistently hit a hundred percent that long. And that, that, that requires a lot of work. It's, it's, it's a lot of chasing, but also um, upfront work and making sure they they're fully invested in the programs. You you can minimize that type of second, third ask uh, commendable that you were able to accomplish that. That's, that just speaks volumes to how you've sold the program and, and the the shape that it's in now. It really speaks to our CDSs, to our clinical documentation mm-hmm. specialists. They have the emotional intelligence. They're able to read the room. They know how to approach physicians and speak to them. And a lot of times the physicians want to speak. I've said this in public before. I think it Actus too. The physicians want to speak to, I'll say, oh, can I help you? They're like, no, we really want to talk to Trish or we really want to talk to Rebecca. <laughs> They're looking for the CDS. So um, that's a testament to the team really and, and yeah. how well they uh, they do this. That's cool. So you're just kind of the go-between. Oh, yes. Chris is, yeah, I'll, I'll walk you to her office today or whatever. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> it's not to get okay. I'll get you Trisha's number, yeah. Yes. 
All right. Well, chatting with you before the show, I want to get real for a minute. You know, one of the one of the things I think you've been working on a little bit you know, focused here at Cooper is um, working with vendors and positively, but also sort of, I guess, fending off a lot of advances. And I'm I'm trying to be respectful here because I technically work for a vendor. We we don't have uh, you know we don't supply. Um, some of the solutions we might talk about here later, we're much more on the staffing and a little bit consulting side. But that aside, um, wanted to talk to you about sort of the state of the vendor community. You've uh, you've got some frustrations here, and I think some of it's warranted. There is a lot of talk. You you can't help when you read some of the promises um, about how some of these software programs can deliver X percent CMI increase. I'm always very leery about that because I don't know how you can possibly state that without knowing how well a CDI program is documenting and capturing all its conditions. So to me, that that has always set up a bit of a red flag in terms of boundary pushing. Um, but just wanted to get your opinion on, we don't have to name names, but just your recent experience with vendors. I know you you seem to be serving a little bit as a um, truth speaker, uh, <laughs> pushing back on some of the promises. Uh, what's worked for you with with vendors in EHR? You've had some success with Epic, I believe. And uh, what and what do you think is lacking here in this space? Well, that's a, such a huge topic with vendors yeah. because it is difficult. And I understand, I see it from their perspective. Uh, there's a sell, there's a need to sell. And there mm-hmm. are some great technologies out there and it's important. And we need to be open to that and investigate that. But we also, as professionals, depending on where we work, have to have the needs of the organization in mind, what's best for the organization, what may be best for our team. Um, and we also have to be really cognizant of the hidden costs sometimes with some of these products that are not mentioned up front. And if you're a little bit naive, you may not think of. And I always use the example of when people have come in to propose software to us and the offer is that it'll be free for a period of time. And, you know, there's no risk here. It's free. And I've I've had quite a few times my informatics counterparts say to me, Nicole, who's going to pay for the man hours that our team needs to use to, and I'm not a techie person, right, but to integrate the software to get X, Y, and Z Mm. set up. And all of a sudden I'm at a loss for words because I'm like, well, they said it was free, you know, and and nothing's free. And I think um, sometimes in the vendor world, there's so much, um, so much push to sell that that happens, right? So there's this mm-hmm. promise of free when it's not really free. But the other thing you kind of mentioned when you were asking the question was, there's not a lot of pre-work done ahead of time. And there's promises made or statistics cited. And I think to myself also, if you haven't seen our data or you're not really familiar with our charts or what our environment is like, how can you make those promises, particularly about things like CMI mm-hmm. shift or changes in DRG? And it's not fair to really say that unless you've been able to look under the hood uh, yep. here and see what we're actually doing. So I'm, I'm automatically wary of things like that when there's random numbers cited, when I know my own data very well. And I'm not sure where they're getting the information to kind of make those predictions. Right. So I think honesty on both sides is really important. I think the vendors, it's important, but it's also important for us not to waste their time or not to spend too much time getting them invested if we know that there's not a chance that we're going to use their product. And it's sort of a balance there of how you do that and still maintain a good relationship so mm-hmm. that if a product comes up again, maybe that would work, you're not completely turned off to one another. Absolutely. It's the art of the game. You know, it's really trying to just 
keep it honest, be realistic, um, and not have hurt feelings at the end if you don't decide to go with a product or if you do at the expense of something else. Yeah. I almost hesitate to ask this question because I'm sure someone will listen and go, oh, we have the solution. But I'm curious, <laughs> Nicole, if you had, what do you think's missing? Do you think there was an opportunity here? Is there something you said, gosh, I wish someone, some aspiring software vendor actually had a solution that would help us with X? Um, just curious. Well, I mean, you know, the ultimate solution would be how do you have a system where where the burden on physicians for documentation is relieved to the point where it really just becomes so simple that anyone could do it properly. Mm. We have made made this so complex and so yeah. burdensome, even though there's been multiple products to try to simplify it. They don't always work in concert with one another. Maybe they integrate with your EHR, maybe they don't. Um, different health systems use different EHRs. And it's just, it's still, despite all the advances in technology, is still a very difficult process for physicians to do smoothly. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we suffer from note bloat. We suffer from copy and paste, cut and paste. And it's just overly burdensome still, yeah. despite how advanced technology is. And I don't know what the solution to that is. Everybody will tell you they have the solution, but I haven't seen it yet. Because even for me, who's very well educated with this, it is so painful to sit down and sign my notes and yeah. put my attestations on. It takes a tremendous amount of time. Yeah. I'm hoping that we might see some of the new you know, AI, the, the, the generative softwares step in here and make a difference, you know, that you could prompt it to write a discharge summary based on just a few prompts. And here's, here's the, here's a, you know, broad clinical picture of the patient and the, and the software does the rest, but, right. um, you know, I've seen I'm using that in a non-clinical capacity that this particular software, ChatGPT and its many spinoffs, that it does make mistakes. It, it hallucinates answers. It will create there. The, the thing about that software is it's, it's not designed to ever say, I don't know. Right. And which gives me great the, pause. <laughs> the considerations and things like that, ChatGPT, is that it poses a lot of, of difficulty. Yep. Uh, so we have protected information. This is patient information that we have to consider. That's okay. a great point. And that software is trained off the prompts and it receives and what it's reading. And is it is it ethical or is it not is it does it violate HIPAA to have that that trained off patient data right. without without patient permission? A lot of unanswered questions with that, but mm -hmm. we'll see where that evolves. Um yeah, I let's let's change gear just a little bit here. Um I know again, right now you guys are Cooper's involved in a lot of initiatives, always, always something new happening with the CDI program there. One thing I want to talk a little bit about here is uh, mortality reviews. Uh, this is a new, newish area for you, as I understand it. Um, and this does, again, tie back to what we talked about earlier in the show. You, you mentioned the epidemic of gun violence, um, dealing with expired patients and, um, you know, the unfortunate reality of having to clarify a difficult case with a with a physician who's ex just experienced that. Maybe there are some CDI opportunities there, but you're 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 talking about, um, you know, the a terrible outcome in many cases for for the patient. So, could you talk about what you guys are doing here with with um, mortality mortality reviews and and really sort of 
how that might differ from a CDI review where the, the patient's been discharged after three days and it's it's a very different outcome and how a CDI might want to approach a case like this. Sure. So mortality overall as an issue is a sensitive one for people. Nobody wants yep. patients to die, obviously. I think as a trauma surgeon, I'm unfortunately intimately familiar with that outcome. It's yeah. not a surprising outcome in a lot of the cases that we have. And it happens. We we always talk in our group that we see death every week, many couple times a week. Um, there are some medical professionals who don't see death at all, or maybe once a year or twice a year a patient dies. And so we have a little bit of a skewed view of that. And even in my documentation life, when I used to document, a patient would come in very sick and we'd perform a lot of interventions and do a lot of things as we always do, and they would ultimately die. My documentation was very sparse because my mindset was not correct. I would think, well, the patient's deceased. You know, Let me just make sure that the chart's complete and move on to the next six or seven patients that we're actively caring for. But I would underestimate the amount of effort we had put into saving that person's life and the importance of documenting that for so many reasons that we've already talked about, you know, mm -hmm. quality, uh, accuracy, the pay for the patient's experience so that you have everything documented and things like that. And so I really had to shift when it was, my attention was drawn to it, um, to documenting just as robustly for those patients as I was doing for the patients that have been here for 10 days, 20 days, 30 days. I mean, um, you had to make sure you did that. It took us a little bit of time here to recognize that we should be, we should have a CDS that was dedicated to reviewing all the mortalities that occurred in the hospital. Because for the just reasons I outlined, there were documentation opportunities there and we wanted to make sure those patients were accurately represented. So we started doing that and it really has yielded tremendous benefit in terms of capturing diagnoses that weren't listed, procedures that may have been done that weren't recorded, um, just to make everything as accurate and compliant as possible. And it's helped us, I'll just give you one example, identify opportunities like getting palliative care involved more mm. often than they had been, or the importance of documenting palliative care conversations and palliative care involvement. And so we've been working with that team at Cooper to get them um, involved earlier in patient care, and uh, document appropriately and things like that. And, and we've identified opportunities like that. That's not the only, it's just one example, but through these mortality reviews. So they have been very fruitful and I think very important for the organization. And so yeah. we continue that. We have a person that's dedicated to doing that, really enjoys it and is very good at it because as most CDSs, if they're listening, will know it's a different process than your bread and butter chart review. So mm -hmm. it's much more labor intensive. Some of those charts can take three or four or five hours to review thoroughly and really comb through all the details. So yeah. it requires a full-time person. Absolutely. Anything you look for in that person who's doing those type of reviews, what type of skill sets or, or uh, mindset they have to have, clinical background, um, anything there that you might recommend? One, they have to be interested because I think not every CDS would be interested in dedicated time, dedicating time to mortality reviews. Uh, two, they have to be known to be meticulous methodical in terms of their chart review. So I don't know if there's a specific skill set we need in terms of clinical exposure or, but basically interest and then diligence in terms of the way that they do chart reviews and, and being very detail oriented and willing to spend a lot of time combing through the chart. Every right. value, every consultant note, even kind of little things that you have to look for that may not be obvious. They really have to have a good understanding of the EHR and where to find information. Sure. 
And then how about selling this? I mean, initially, again, this is maybe where you you came in um, when you first launched this initiative. I don't know how it was launched exactly, but, you know, um, physicians are obviously going to be sensitive around this topic. This is a re- reflection on their quality and, and you know, their, their licensure, everything about, you know, keeping patients alive and this could be perceived as again, questioning their, their outcomes here. So um, how do you, how did you pitch this, these mortality reviews when you first introduced them at Cooper? What was, was there any, 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 any secret there or, or any suggestions you might have for someone looking to do something similar? I think the, that Cooper had done such a great job in building the CDI program that there was so much trust in the team that what's a really nice, outcome of that is that when you do go to do something new like mortality reviews, people really don't question it. They just think, well, okay, the team obviously identified something and we'll go along with it. We were asked by the quality team to take a look at it um, because we wanted to make sure our metrics like our ODE ratio for mortality were accurate. And so we'd been asked to see if there was anything, any opportunity that CDI could find or, or thought that there might be in terms of documentation. The answer could have been no, you know, but they were open to the answer being yes, we may need somebody to to do this kind of work. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't a hard sell. The only um, struggle we had in the beginning, and I haven't heard about it recently, is the physicians were a little confused as to why they were getting queries about patients that were deceased sort of after the fact. And for some of them mm-hmm. having to relive those cases or receiving queries that might be confusing to them was upsetting. And that just took a little little phone call. When I get an email like that, it's an automatic phone call. I'm not going to keep responding an email because I know that that person needs a deeper explanation and um, some time. So I would just call them directly and we would talk and and people understood once you explained it clearly. And I needed to make sure the queries were written very clearly also that they weren't confusing or um, unnecessary. And so we worked through some of those issues in the beginning and yeah. it's been, it's been very seamless. We have a great CDI director, Rebecca Wilcutt, who oversees this you know, Rebecca, and, yeah. uh, you know, answers questions as they come up to and, and things like that. So it's been That's okay. great. That's great. And what, what is the, the ultimate goal here? Is it, is it, do you guys use the APR group where you're trying to get that SOI ROM um, up to f- four or is it something, is it a different outcome you're looking for here? You know what our goal has always been, and I stand by this, we never set, I mean, obviously we have some baseline things that we want to achieve, but our goal here is to always make sure the documentation is as accurate and compliant as possible. So when people Love ask me, what's your revenue recovery goal? Mm-hmm. I don't know anymore, right? We do the mm-hmm. best we can, you know, or what's your, where do you want to see the severity of illness or the risk of mortality, where it should be, uh, you know, mm-hmm. where, where we know that we've identified every documentation opportunity, we've made it as accurate as possible. And then the numbers are going to fall out where they fall out. We don't focus so much on, on those things anymore. What I do want is a hundred percent response rate, um, mm-hmm. zero tolerance with that. And I only want about an 80% agreement rate because I do want the physicians reading the queries and I don't want a hundred percent agreement rate with them because it means they're just checking. They're trusting right. us too much, right? They're just checking a box and agreeing. So those are the only two metrics I really stand behind every time we review that, 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 you know, the, the response rate needs to be a hundred percent and the agreement rate should be about 80, 80%, 85%. I love it. I love that. I haven't heard that with the agree rate, to be honest. And that probably means, you know, your, your CDIs are asking very credible and, and question and questions that only the, the, that provider would know, you know, mm-hmm. and um, they're not just asking for the basics of acuity and, 
you know, type of heart failure, what, what have you, they're, they're, they're stretching their, um, their, their clinical knowledge and their, um, their acumen and they're allowing the physician to independently render judgment on that, on that, on that case, their own, their own, you know, um, being a, a independent, thoughtful provider, they're, they're, they're part of the process. That's what that 80% tells me mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah, uh, exactly. I love that. Yeah. Um, anything else at Cooper you want to talk about from a CDI or coding perspective or, or anything that you're, you're struggling with? Sometimes I feel like we learn about people from what isn't working so well. Uh, anything you want to share there that you guys have seen on the horizon? It, we just haven't been able to, to get this yet, or we're working toward this and we're hoping for this outcome? Just, you know, manpower, keeping up with the market is a struggle. Sometimes we have had, or I can tell you one struggle we have is because our clinical documentation specialists are so good. Other people want them, you know, so we have to keep up with the market. We have to keep tune with what other people are offering. And that's a, that's a constant struggle and a process and evolution. So it's a good problem to have. Um, just making sure we're not missing anything, you know, are we doing things that other places are doing? And I always feel like we need to be moving even a, a step ahead. So mm-hmm. um, with the mortality reuse is a good example. I remember saying to my CEO, I should have recognized that earlier, that we could have been doing that. That was a fault of mind that we yep. didn't, we weren't a little bit ahead on that. But then I have to check myself and remember that the program is only nine years old. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we are, we've been moving at a pretty quick rate. And we've expanded very quickly. So it's okay. Sometimes you're not going to be up on everything all the time. So I think the thing we're struggling with the most is just recruiting good people, keeping good people. Yep. And I think everybody is is has has that problem. So yeah, it's changed a lot with again with remote and having folks being able to work. You're you're not just competing now with hospitals in the greater That's right. New Jersey, New York yep. nationwide. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well. For those listening, again, they've got an awesome program there. You might want to consider working at Cooper Health. <laughs> um, I'll just float that up there. Absolutely, <laughs> it's amazing, Nicole. Let's just let's change gears here for the end of the show. I know we're running we're running out of time, but would love just to hear a little bit about you and. Uh, well, frankly, this is kind of an odd question. I never asked. I, 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 how's married life? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been um, a big year for you. And it would, I would just love to hear how it's going with you and the kids and, and your, um, your new spouse and sure. what that's meant. Well, I can tell you that if anything, you know, COVID was a very difficult time for everybody, obviously, for so many reasons. But one of the things for me that came out of it was that I met my husband, um, who was my <laughs> daughter's seventh grade science teacher. Oh, wow. And this was a, during a time of remote school. Uh, and my daughter was struggling a little bit, as I think most kids were with the remote school and keeping up and yeah. her grade in science was lagging a little bit. And in my frustration, because I was still working every day, trying to balance home life with going to work and not being able to work at home. My solution to this was to email her teacher to ask him how he was going to improve his teaching um, of my daughter <laughs> to to make sure that she could succeed in his class. And uh, yeah, I look back on that now as a, I laugh about it, but. Um, that might've been one you wanted to do with a phone call, Nicole. That was, yeah, that email my daughter brought to the wedding. She was potentially going to read that as her toast, but. Oh God, um, I love that. It was a very trauma surgeon reaction to try to solve a problem quickly. And it, it backfired in the sense that he very quickly put me in my place about what my daughter was not doing, you know, to, to achieve mm-hmm. the thing that she needed. And um, one thing led to another from there. So we, we got married in February, which was really nice Amazing. because, um, 
it was all about our family and about our kids. Our kids were a wedding party and it was a very small kind of intimate um, ceremony. And it's just the right thing. You know, I, it's, it's the right time in my life. It was the right person. And I waited a long time for that. Um, it was difficult as I told you, and I've said uh, during my keynote that I have four kids. You were missing one, by the way. Oh but, gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah. Being a single parent, raising four kids and being a trauma surgeon and doing everything else was certainly not easy, but the wait for the right partner was certainly worth it. And and I have found that and I'm very happy about that. So I feel really lucky. Yeah. You seem very centered and balanced. I don't know if it was your, just because you tripped to Tokyo, but I think it probably has to do with uh, having better balance with home and work and, and, uh, what an amazing story. <laughs> the, yeah, it was a little crazy. <laughs> well, that 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 was a crazy time. And there, there was, you know, I, so I have two daughters, Nicole, and uh, one of them is just, well, I'm going to be an empty nester uh, at the I end know. of this week. They're yeah. both heading off to college. One's a senior in college. The other one will be a freshman in college. So different phase of life for me coming up here. Um, but I remember those COVID years and it was, uh, it was hard on everybody. Uh, certainly hard on the nation's healthcare system without saying um, all the excess deaths and, but the, the isolation and kids working from home. And there, there was a lot of finger pointing, you know, there was a lot of, uh, it's like you spend again, we'll, we'll go back to the refrain. This could be a whole show in and of itself, but right. you want, you want kids to be healthy and home safe, but they, they rely so much on, you know, school is just as much about interpersonal relationships, friendships, as it is about academics and learning. And teachers were trying to learn a whole new technology at the same time, right. teach kids how do you, you know, it's one thing to get a kid to pay attention in class, which is an incredible challenge in and of itself, but on Zoom when they can just open up another window and, or when they might not have the same expectations to do work. So challenging time. And um, I give you a kudos for at least addressing the issue when other people sort of said, Oh, this is just temporary. I'll, I'll let my kid take an eight month break here um, in effect, which a lot of kids did right. and it set them back. So right. I, I, I give you credit for getting the hundred percent response rate from a science teacher as well. It worked out well, right? <laughs> <laughs> I certainly got a response. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I, again, I am, um, I'm so happy for you. You Sound great. Not that you, you. haven't before, but everything is looking great for you. And um, I'm looking forward to see what the next year brings. But now I'm going to hit you with, the, of course, the hardest question that everybody I prepared dreads. for this one. Let me tell I, you. I hope you did because yes. I've, I've caught people unprepared. They haven't necessarily looked at the questions I've sent them and they've uh, flustered. And, and and it's been actually the couple. <laughs> I, talk, I can talk about CDI. I can talk about these right. you know, ridiculous, comp complicated regulatory questions and they'll address them without issue, but you ask them their favorite song from the eighties. It doesn't have to be eighties, although that's, that's my decade of choice. They, uh, <laughs> they're caught um, a little bit unprepared. So let's, what do you got for me, Nicole? Okay. So first of all, you're a big music fan as am I. Yep. Um, and I, I don't know if you know this, but my favorite band of all time for many reasons is Aerosmith. And oh my God. I, how yes, did I not know this? Huge Aerosmith fan. So I'll be seeing them this Saturday as they kick off their peace out tour in Philadelphia. I know oh, that they nice. decided to do it here because that's where I'm from. Yeah. Um, so they're going to be with the black crows in Philadelphia on Saturday. So my husband and I'll be there, but I think my favorite song, and it is from 1989. I checked to make sure it was eighties. Yeah. Is what it takes uh, by Aerosmith. Okay. And you know, the reason for that is I think one, it's a good song, even though my husband would not agree, but 
The other reason is it took on a totally different meaning to me because I play music in the operating room. And I remember that song playing one time while we had a really difficult case where the patient actually didn't make it. And so the lyrics of the song sort of took on a different meaning, you know, tell me what it takes to let you go. Um, Tell me how the pain is supposed to go. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't a breakup song to me. It sort of represented a little bit more about patience and, uh, and things like that. So I actually had the chance to meet Steven Tyler and Joe Perry oh in um, Maryland pre-pandemic. I did the VIP package and I went back and met them. And I told Steven Tyler this um, about the song and then I played it in the operating room and he was fascinated. And that is so um, cool. He ended up playing it on stage and gave me a shout out. He said to Nicole, a trauma surgeon from New Jersey. And no. Saying, yes. And I have it on tape if you need to watch it to verify <laughs> because I, I was going to say picture, picture, it didn't happen, but you've got it on tape. Oh my I God. I have pictures and I have it on tape. So that's phenomenal. And it wow. was really cool. It was really, I just, it made me love the band even more. I mean, just yeah. because they were such great people. That he'd remember that. Yeah. It was a very memorable concert. And uh, now it's definitely my favorite song. So. So what it takes by Aerosmith. Now I don't think they'll well, play it this Saturday because it's typically not on their set list. But yeah, if they do. They do. Well, this is going to be an awesome addition to the list. You actually trump my story. I was going to say I, I've never met Steven Tyler, but he has a home. Um, I'm not sure if it's his primary home or if it's a summer home, but um, up on Lake Sunapee, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I had known this, and it always stuck in the back of my mind. I we have a my family has owned a summer camp um, about. 20, 25 minutes from Sunapee on a different lake, Highland Lake. But we we stopped by Sunapee, beautiful area. And I was out there. This was probably two, th- I can tell you it was either 03 or 04 because my older daughter at the time was very small. She was, we were pushing around in a carriage. So we're wheeling her down the sidewalk on, at Sunapee. And I see this guy on rollerblades coming toward us. You know, it's a small sidewalk, <laughs> very tall, hair flowing out the back, headband on. He had a uh, sleeveless tank top with a skull on it. And like looked very, <laughs> looked like he might've just stepped off the back of a Harley Davidson and weighed about 120 pounds. It was That's about right. six, six, six on, on rollerblades at least. And I'm like, he's coming toward me. I'm like, oh my God, that's Steven Tyler. <laughs> And my wife and I pointed at me, he gave us a little smile and a thumbs up and sped on by. That was my Steven Tyler experience. Seems like I a have cool to tell dude. You, I was really impressed because <laughs> we had the chance to meet their crew and everything. And the people that work for them have worked for them forever, 20, 30 years. And they told me before going in that these are the nicest, this band is the nicest group of people they've ever worked for. And I, have to, I was really overwhelmed by how humble they were, how nice they made sure that everybody had a good time, was comfortable and to do that, to say my name on stage and then sing that song was above and beyond like anything I ever would have expected. And I just thought that was really, really nice. So I was very impressed. Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that with that, Nicole. I will let you go. Uh, you certainly got what it takes. Uh, sorry, that, that that was so cheesy, but I, I just couldn't. <laughs> that was good. That's, that's something I would have said. <laughs> I love it. All right, Nicole, take care. And for all of our listeners, remember, subscribe to Off the Record. Give us a like. It helps with uh, and five star rating star five star review helps with our uh, searchability on uh, all the platforms, and also love to hear from you if you if you like today's interview. You have any uh, suggestions for future guests? You can hit me up at brian uh, brian murphy at norwood.com. Love to hear from you. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to Off the Record. 
If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. We'll catch you in the next episode.